Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name's John, and with me is a guy who put all his money into Celsius. How's that working out for you, Steve? It's it's not going well, John. I'm broke. But did they officially file bankruptcy? No, no, they they have not actually. I and I don't think they will. I think they're, they're still they're uh, fighting for solvency at the moment, but they've joined several other exchanges and brokers that have uh, come very close to fighting for ba- bankruptcy. Yeah, what's up with these uh, crypto platforms all built on a house of cards? I, you know, I said I saw one article talking about how they're all just kind of lending and borrowing from each other. So, so not a whole lot of uh, diversification or money, just uh, kind of handing it back and forth. It, it is, you know, um, one thing that, that has really become clear in, in the past few weeks, we, as we've seen the crypto winter, is that essentially it's, clarify, it's, clarify for me, Steve. Clarified, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's an overly financialized industry, by, by which I mean that they've gone beyond the use cases of you know moving money around, remittances, um, disentangling from the you know the evil banking sector, and now it's just become sort of all speculation, all you know all these shit coins, uh, and just ways to basically speculate and, and make money without actually keeping an eye on on their north star, which should be the use cases of you know the the goods that crypto and the DLT can can bring about. Oh, that's a lot of work. I just want to make a quick buck, a quick, quick crypto. Oh, you're talking about building a business and finding use cases, solving for pain points. Yeah, no. Building trade. product market fit, all that. Yeah, exactly. Or, or just straight line goes up. Trade, trade, trade. Hashtag line goes up, right? Speaking of crazy line going up, the, the meme stock of last year, GameStop, terminated their CFO. And they're they're going to start to have layoffs. So yeah, the just the financial side doesn't make a business. It, it doesn't. No, they, they're actually. I think they're doing a four to one split now, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That that'll make it better automatically. Four yeah, times. That will always make it better. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about building a real business. We are lucky to have somebody who has some experience with that uh, with us this week. Patrick D'Souza, the co-founder and CTO at Grain. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. Glad you joined us this week. Any uh, insights on the, the crypto space? You have, you have any investments in that area? I do not. And it's funny because as a co-founder of a fintech company, I often get questions from friends around crypto. And my, my response is usually, you know, enter at your own risk. Uh, you, you can make a lot of money fast and you can lose a lot of money fast. And not generally let them make the decision from there. Personally, uh, being a founder for the past about five years now, uh, I've seen sort of the, the, the waves of the crypto market from afar, but I've chosen to stay on the shorelines. Wise advice. Yeah, so basically just uh, build things up, invest for the long term, just the, uh, the normal things uh, you would advise. And is that the advice uh, for your customers? Grain focuses on building up credit for people who don't have the best uh, credit scores starting out. Is that right? Yeah. So it, there, there's sort of a, a mixed bag of, of customers, but but for sure, those that you mentioned are, are very uh, privy to to join Grain because, as as the name suggests, you know, grains are, are, are small things that can grow over time. And to your point about crypto versus sort of the, the more traditional longer term strategies of, of wealth generation, you know, you, you make small decisions today and you keep making these small correct decisions and over time it'll bloom into larger financial returns. And so our philosophy is it's not a matter of 
get rich quick, which in our space means just dump a huge credit limit on someone. Uh, it's more so about building up small increments over time. Um, and so going back to the crypto analogy, uh, we're not in the business of, hey, tomorrow you are going to get a $20,000 credit limit and your score will jump 200 points. It's not necessarily what we do. And so our our position is more so a longer term position. And judging from the name, that's that was the the focus of the business from the very beginning. Uh, how, how did you guys get started? You were at Goldman Sachs for, for a while. Uh, and then how, how did this idea get started? Yeah, so I was, at, I was at Goldman for a while doing the traditional sort of Wall Street thing. And while I was there, I always had some of the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial mindset and was kind of, you know, just building experience and, and evaluating different opportunities that came my way. And, you know, one day, nearly five years ago, a friend of mine reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I'm out here in the Bay and I know this guy out here who's building a fintech and he's looking for a technical co-founder. And I thought that maybe you guys should talk because you've been working in finance for some time. You're a great engineer and it might be a fit. And so that's this, how- This does sound a lot like the Bay Area. <laughs> yeah. You could have ended yeah, up at a lot which, of different companies. So, but- Which I've learned going. over time. I've learned that over time, being on the East Coast, you realize that the cultures are, are somewhat different. And uh, the Bay Area is very much so about connecting people in the tech space, not as much in, in New York. And so, yeah, that was the beginning of my uh, first conversations with, with Christian. Our Christian's our CEO, co-founder. And from there, I met Carl. Carl's our, our COO. Carl was actually in New York. Uh, we overlapped a couple of years at Goldman Sachs. He's an attorney. And we met, had, had dinner together, and the rest is history. So what about this talk with uh, Christian convinced you to, that this would be a good idea? Initially, what, what drew me to the opportunity was not just the financial sort of prospects for me personally or for us was, it was really about the mission. And so Christian at the time, living in the Bay Area, not sure how, how long you gentlemen have been here, but you'll probably hear around those that time of, as well. And there was a lot going on in terms of protests around gentrification and people getting pushed out of neighborhoods, things of that nature. And Christian being a product manager uh, out here in the Bay Area, what he decided to do was, hey, let me create a solution that can help maybe provide people the opportunity to build some credit that they can get the apartments that they want maybe even you know get the mortgage that they need to, to buy a home so they can't get pushed out. And so his position was, it's not the only aspect of somewhat of the, the wealth gap in the country, but it is certainly one of them, access to credit. His thought was, well, let's provide people more, more financial access from a, from a credit standpoint, and maybe that can open up some other doors that maybe were closed to folks before. So your take here is that you're not actually looking, you're not actually um, looking at a credit score in terms of how you issue credit to people who apply your platform, but you're actually looking at cash flow. How are those? How, how do those two models differ? And and uh, and how, how did you land upon that as sort of the the kernel for grain? The traditional credit underwriting model says this: either you walk into a bank branch or you go to a bank's website and you fill out some application either on paper or on a website. 
And what you're gonna provide is all your demographic information, such your name, your address, all that good stuff. But you're also gonna provide your self-reported income and you're gonna provide your, your social security number that they can then use to go and pull a credit report to learn about your credit history, right? Now, there are multiple issues with, with that whole process. Uh, first and foremost, if you're going to pull somebody's credit report and they don't have a credit report, then you're kind of in a chicken and egg situation. So that's number one, solving for the chicken and egg and ensuring that a person not already having a credit profile is a prerequisite for them to get credit. It's almost like the situation where someone says, hey, we would hire you for this job, but you need more experience. But if, you're first, if it's your first job you're trying to, to get, how do you get that experience, right? So that's the first, that's the first thing. The second thing is, particularly if you're walking into a, a, a bank branch is, of course, discrimination, right? So people get judged based on what, what they look like, where they live. And so we want to eliminate all that from the equation as well. How, how many folks are actually applying for credit out, out of branch anymore? Definitely not as much as it used to be, right? And, and we, can, we can talk about some of that in terms of the, the shifting mindset in, in how consumers are approaching credit um, mm -hmm. more generally. Um, but you should be surprised in terms of small business loans, which is not an area that we're in yet, but certainly uh, would like to be in the future. And you'd be surprised how many of those loans actually get originated at physical bank branches. You, you're targeting essentially um, people with either thin credit files or not great credit scores. Um, how did you land upon this segment of the, the population? And what sort of business points other than access to credit, what pain points rather, are you looking to solve for that population? Yeah, so we had a theory at the outset. And that theory is that there's a large segment of the population that's being locked out from getting access to credit, either because they've never had credit before, right? Or they might've had credit in the past, but something happened, some life event happened. Maybe there was a, a medical emergency and you know insurance didn't cover everything. So they, they use credit to cover medical bills or there was some sort of, maybe someone went through a divorce and there were a lot of lawyer fees. There's any number of things that could have happened. Uh, and, and so these people are not necessarily people who are bad with money. They're not necessarily people who are trying to just grab money and run, but life happens to some people. And we felt like there's that segment of the population that wasn't being served. And if you can target those people, and if you can underwrite them in a responsible way, then there's a segment of the market that you can capture that most of the big banks aren't even willing to look at, right? And so we figured we provide an opportunity to those folks. Now, although that is the case, there are, there are people who are on our platform who have really good credit and they also have really good cash flow, but they've maybe been a little bit sort of uh, turned off by some of the predatory nature of, of other credit cards that they've had in the past. And so they're looking for something that's a little bit different that doesn't sort of carry that same approach to providing credit to their customers. Got it. So you're talking not, not just the fact that maybe you don't have access, but also the fact that there's some reluctance, right, on the user side to even engage in credit, which actually, which I see a lot within, uh, with people that, that I know as well. I understand that one benefit is that uh, you know you're not tied into a credit a credit card, um, especially your cash flow. I know that um, there's an interesting use case of, for example, students who come to the U.S. who maybe have significant cash flow but just can't get credit because they they, they don't have a a, 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 a 
because they don't have any credit. Um, uh, what, wh how do your fees compare then with a traditional credit card? So if I were to assess, you know, buying something with either using my grain credit or my Chase card, um, how would those two compare? Yes. So one of the things that we did from the top as well was decide that we wanted to have a flat APR platform. So your normal credit card, Chase or or Bank of America or whomever, you usually have a an APR that's tied to the risk they think that you're going to bring to the table. Right. For us, what we decided was, you know what, we're going to democratize this, not only from an access standpoint, but from an affordability standpoint, in the sense that independent of where we think you are, your risk level, because obviously there's, there's always risk in the lending in the credit space, but independent of that risk, what we want to do is say everybody gets the same APR. And for and for us, that's that's 15%. So when you look at sort of the averages, then average changes, you know, over time and from year to year. But mm -hmm. if you look at the average APR out there, we're actually below the average APR. And one of the reasons why why we why we can do that is because we feel that underwriting through cash flow allows us to de-risk the the business a little bit more than someone who's providing self-reported income and just relying on on credit scores so so even if the you know as, as the fed continues to hike interest rates even if if credit card which which, which i think are about 70 percent or so now nationally it's still you will always have that edge of being below what the credit card companies can offer that's a that's a really good question uh there's a lot going on right now in the news in terms of what the Fed is doing and, and what the prime rate is and what other banks are doing. It may be something that we we necessarily can't control, our, our banking partners, which um, certainly I hope to, to talk about at some point in time. Our banking partners also, you know, they're providing us the lending capital and, and they're sort of beholden to regulations and 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 the the macroeconomic environment as well. So we may need to raise at some point, even though we'll do our best not to. That said, we always want to stay competitive from an APR standpoint. And more than anything, we want to make sure that that APR is consistent across our entire customer base. So you're using a different kind of model to, to make these assessments. Uh, and you've, uh, you've been at this uh, five years, you said, right? Yes, just shy of five years, yes. So has there been some, um, and I always ask this about the pivots, uh, some change in the way that you assess things or you've had to like uh, change the model substantially uh, from the beginning? Because uh, I'm guessing you didn't have a lot of data or information at the beginning to make these, uh, uh, these credit assessments or even the uh, cash flow. Um, what uh, looks makes sense? So is it a lumpy cash flow? Is this a, a red flag? Uh, that kind of information. How has that evolved? And have you had to make any big changes as as your company has grown up? We haven't made any substantive changes. There are minor changes here and there, changing some weights, the relative importance of one metric or the other. I think that's the question earlier. One about how we differ from a traditional credit card. And our model based on cash flow, you know, one of the things we look at is your average monthly income, your average spend every month, of course, since we're doing cash flow. But we also look at things like what is your average balance in your checking account over a period of time? 
right? We're looking at your expense ratio. We're looking at uh, various data points that most traditional credit cards aren't looking at. And being that we've been live in the market for about two and a half years now, yes, we have accumulated a lot of data um, and we are in the process of going back and seeing, hey, well, can we get some more efficiencies based on the learnings that we've acquired in the past two and a half years being, being live in market? Absolutely. Have we made those changes yet? Not yet, but it's certainly on the horizon for us. So you're the CTO. What do you use in terms of uh, AI and uh, machine learning? Uh, and where do you see that devolving that, that would help your business? Yeah, so we have started out with a sort of a rules-based engine to determine how we allocate our, our lines of credit, which we use to then feed into a machine learning model to, to tune our, our weights and the relative, like I mentioned before, the relative importance of various factors that we consider during the underwriting process. Um, happy to say that um, although I am not a data scientist, uh, we, we did hire a data scientist very, very recently, and uh, he's going to take a ton of weight off my shoulders in terms of the heavy lifting and sort of making our machine learning models more robust. And, you know, even coming up with, with additional cash flow metrics that maybe we haven't considered in the past. And, you know, we'll use those to optimize our unwinding process in two ways. One is we want to make sure that people are getting the appropriate credit limit and that, and that goes in both directions. So maybe there are people now who can actually support a higher credit limit that we're not providing to them yet because we're not optimizing on, on the credit model. And then the other direction as well. So maybe we're overextending some people that we need to, to give a lower limit. So having a data scientist on a team full-time now is going to pay um, very large dividends, and I'm super excited to, to have him um, on board with us. A good, good timing with an expected recession coming up, and uh, uh, things might uh, test your, your current models a bit. Absolutely. And the first test that we had was actually during the pandemic. So we launched in the App Store proper um, after beta testing in December of 2019. Oh, and tough timing. Yeah. Exactly. And at the time, you know, we couldn't predict that in just a few short months, we'd be sort of running headfirst into a, into a pandemic and an economic recession. And so coming out of Y Combinator in March of 2020, you guys are in the Bay Area, you remember about mid-March, that's when things really shut down. And that's around the time we had our demo day. And so now we're coming out of YC, trying to raise money, trying to convince investors that we have a lending business as we head into a recession. And what we did is we, we made some changes to our model at that point in time to do things like maybe to detect some changes, some recent changes in income and sort of make that a more important factor in our, in our underwriting. And we grew, we grew during the recession, actually, because I think what ended up happening is when you look at the general landscape of creditors that, are, that were available to, to these customers, most creditors were actually increasing their credit requirements. And typically, the way they increase their credit requirements is using the credit score. So whereas maybe you could have gotten you know, credit card X with the 630 credit score, 
when the pandemic started, then they said, well, you need at least a 700 credit score to get access to a credit line with us, right? And so that's a lot of people who sort of live in between 630 and 700. And so those people who are out there looking for alternatives to, to those credit cards who are no longer servicing them, ultimately can find companies like Grain that will provide them a line of credit. And because we're looking at their cash flow, not their credit score, we were able to service them during a pandemic. And so we took a lot of those learnings and we're going to apply them now as we're heading into what all signs are pointed to are another recession. Um, do you find that your customers tend to sort of graduate from your service and go on to enter the traditional banking space, or do they stay with you and use credit or you and use grain as their main way to access credit? So we actually have a very, very low churn rate. Now, that's not to say that customers don't pick up another credit product, right? Because unlike sort of other products, you can have multiple credit products, right? So you can have a wallet, you can have multiple credit cards in the wallet. So people typically don't close their account. Yes, absolutely, some customers do. There's less than 1% of our entire portfolio has, of our entire customer base has, has closed their account. I think what happens is once people get used to the experience that they're having on grain, they like it, they want to keep it. It's not to say that they don't want to necessarily get, um, you know, maybe their, their credit score has increased and, and they want to get additional- The Chase Sapphire card. Yeah, maybe, maybe they want to get that, right? Um, which is perfectly fine. But I think overall, what customers are realizing is that they're enjoying their experience with grain. They see the value that it provides. And although we might not necessarily provide a huge line of credit in the, you know, on the order of five or $10,000, which they might ultimately be seeking, they're still happy to keep that grand credit line for their day-to-day expenses. So you're not a, a bank. You don't have a banking license, right? So are you providing services through, uh, as, as we see with a lot of uh, fintechs, uh, banking as a service, credit as a service, uh, compliance reg tech companies uh, that are getting you through the, all, the, all the, the hurdles and hoops you have to go through to, to stay compliant and to scale your business? I'm really, really glad you asked that question. I was hoping we got to talk about this. We like to look at ourselves as B2B, B2B to C. What do I mean by that? Let's talk about the B2C part because that's where we begin our conversation. On the B2C side, we are providing access to affordable lines of credit based on cash flow and not credit scores, right? That's probably well known. That's sort of our customer facing pitch. On the B2B side, what we do is we turn community banks into fintech companies, right? How do we do that? Well, if you think about it, community banks are a vital part of, of our economy. However, community banks often struggle to, one, attract a younger demographic of customer, and two, they, they typically don't have the technology resources to build certain products that consumers come to expect. Right. So what does that mean? It limits the scope of the customer that they're able to attract and retain. So what we do is we go to community banks and we say, hey, we're a tech company. We're very UX focused. We build beautiful products, very functional products, and they work. And guess what? We also have the skill set to acquire customers that never heard of your bank and probably never would unless we were the ones to acquire that customer for you. 
So the proposition and the sell to our community banking partners is exactly this. We say, you're a bank in New York, a community bank in New York, small to mid-sized bank, whether that means you have $500 million in assets or, or $2 million. And we say, we're gonna get you a customer, we're gonna get you customers in Texas, Florida, Washington, California, Montana, and everywhere else in between. And although they have a checking account with Bank of America, with Chase, with Chime, with Wells Fargo, we're gonna now convert them into a credit customer of your bank. And so us as a technology company, we're not a bank. We're a technology layer on top of these community banks. So we're leveraging their banking charters. All of the customers are, from a legal standpoint, they are, our, our community banking partners are the lenders of record. So they're actually customers of our community banking partners. And they're now eating into the market share of the bigger banks, which then allows community banks to compete in the greater economy. Because as we all know, a lot of community banks are either sort of going under or they're consolidating. So this is one way, and this is the way we pitch it to our banking partners. Our primary banking partner is Ponce Bank in, in, in the Bronx, New York. And our secondary partner is Fulbright Bank in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Our pitch to them is, hey, we're gonna allow you to better compete. Obviously, we're not gonna be solve every problem that they have or or, or, or you know, eat a huge amount of market share, but it's a place to start. And we're gonna give them a platform to compete with the bigger banks that are out there. Speaking of, of your banking partners and, and of Ponce, I know that there was a news report about them having to kick back some, some, something like 25,000 fraudulent loans back to you guys. What happened there and what's the status of, of that dispute? There's a familiar pattern in the fintech space. Company gets created in the fintech space. Company goes to market. Company has very little resources and very little money. Hackers, fraudsters, and all the like, they recognize this. So what they do is they come in and they start basically trying to attack those companies before those companies have the necessary resources to build all the fraud tools and, and bells and whistles necessary to filter out those synthetic, synthetic identities or, or stolen identities, which people buy from the black market and or, or just create with the credit reporting agencies. What happened with us back in 2020 is those sort of fraudsters were coming to the platform and creating accounts, which because they're fraudulent accounts, they had no intent on, on paying back. And so from a balance sheet standpoint, the agreement that we had with our banking partners is if there are losses that are due to accounts that were created under false pretenses, meaning it wasn't a legitimate user, um, they were a fraudster or somebody who, who stole an identity that we would uh, assume uh, those those liabilities but if it's a normal charge off if it's a legitimate customer the bank would assume the liability for those charge offs now over the course of probably nine or ten months we spent a lot of time investing in our fraud protection so we integrated we changed fraud providers uh, identity providers we integrated biometric tests so that you know a person has to come in, they use their driver's license, they scan their driver's license, and they take a selfie, 
And then we have do our third party vendor. It'll do AI to match up the two, confirm all the information on there. We also have now what we call KBA or knowledge based assessment. One of those little tests that you get, randomized tests that says, oh, what car did you drive in 1996? Or what street did you live on in the sure. 2000s? One of those type of things. And those things that all cost money, money that we didn't have at the beginning, right? And so that's why the pattern in terms of these attackers is get the companies that just start because they don't have the resources and the wherewithal to implement all these controls, which we now have in place. It's interesting because I wonder whether these guys are looking at, you know, like crunch based product releases to find their next target, right? Like who's out there, like who's out there trying to target a newly launched fintech in the lending space? It seems like it's such a random, narrow slice of of the crime that you can commit. Yeah, I would like to know as well so that we can uh, not advertise there. (laughs) I would definitely like to know that. But um, it's it's interesting because I was I was speaking to. the head of identity at Plaid, I'm sure you guys, you know, being a FinTech newscast, you, you're you very familiar with Plaid. Of course. Speaking yeah. to the head of identity there, which is, um, he was a CEO and founder of, uh, of Cognito, I, not Cognito, IP, of Cognito. And, you know, he Cognito was Cognito is, is the Plaid. selfie company, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And he was giving a presentation uh, and he basically said exactly that about the pattern. He didn't mention where they were finding the fintech companies, but he definitely identified the fact that, or or at least, you know, he was telling the entire audience about the fact that a lot of these attackers will somehow find out about new fintechs, go after those companies because they don't have the resources to implement the things that that they need to have. And so his product is is wonderful. Uh, We'll probably ultimately shift to them just because it'll be a more streamlined experience for our users since we already use Plaid and Cognito was acquired by Plaid. So we may streamline that process with them. But yeah, for sure, uh, it it's, wasn't something that was specific to us. It happens across the board and it's, it's happened to many fintechs. You generally don't hear about it because most fintechs don't work with public companies as mm-hmm. is our primary banking partner, Ponce. Mm-hmm. But it was disclosed because our banking partner is, is a public company. Therefore, they have to do public filings. And that's how uh, that information came about. But suffice it to say, in my conversations with, with many other founders, it's a very, very common problem. Yeah, we've talked to a few reg techs uh, on the podcast here who uh, like a Comply Advantage, uh, Shield FC, uh, very good, very smart people, and uh, who are telling us uh, their advice is always to build that compliance in from the the very beginning, because uh, like you were saying, that they, they they see that, and that's where a lot of their uh, what a lot of their customers have experienced as well. We, we know you're you're definitely not the only one. Uh, where are you in your fundraising journey? We are sort of in between, sort of seed plus and Series A. Mm-hmm. Uh, although we haven't done a, a price round yet, we've been raising on, on safe notes, safe convertible notes, which has worked well for us. Uh, we would like to raise, well, first of all, let me say we would like to get to profitability uh, by about Q2 or Q3 of 2023. And at that point, we would like to raise a, uh, a Series A. I think one of the things that we pride ourselves on is doing things a little bit differently than, than other people, other companies in our space. Uh, we don't want to rely on VC funds for the long term. And so that's why we are very, uh, very focused on 
get into a point of profitability and sustainability such that if we do raise more money, it'll be for the, for the purpose of, of rapid growth and not necessarily uh, as a necessary lifeblood to keep us alive. That's really interesting. So both you and your co-founder are, are people of color, as, as am I. Um, how does that affect your fundraising efforts, or, or has it? And, and why the aversion to going after VC money? Um, so on the first point, how is it affected? I mean, you never know for sure, right? Yeah. I, I would like to think that it hasn't. Um, but then again, we, we are in America and we understand the climate in this country. Um, that being said, I can't tell you for sure that that has had an impact. So the verge of VC money. So the obvious, the obvious answer to that is the more money you raise, the more dilution you take, right? And that's to the founders and every other employee within the company that has some degree of equity. So that, that's you're saying that's, you, you don't want to be an employee again. Oh no! Basically, <laughs> you work for the VCs after a certain point, right? Oh no! Uh, my my co-founder Christian and I, who we actually live together here in Oakland, we joke about that all the time. Uh, we had this running joke about going back uh, to the rat race, and no, we are planning not to have to go back, and we don't want anybody in our company to have to go back you know, once this company is the success that we believe it can be. Um, and so that's that's probably the primary reason. But also the second reason is to, this, to the extent that you, you accept VC money, you're somewhat beholden to their, their whims and, and their desires, right? And that might not always align with the desires or the whims or what makes the most sense for your company. Right. You know, a lot of times VCs may push for hyper growth when sometimes it might be it might make more sense to slow down growth a bit, work on the unit economics and build a sustainable business. And so the obvious answer is the dilution aspect of it. But the, the more subtle answer is you lose a little bit of the control of the company and the way you want to build the company if you have. I'm not necessarily saying the wrong investors, but if you have investors that are are prioritizing the things that aren't best for your company at that moment, yeah, good, good alignment with uh, your your, and, and that's what I meant. You you end up being an employee if you give away enough of your company, and and you're yeah. you're kind of yeah, like you said, beholden to uh, somebody else's direction, and and that's definitely not why you start a company, right? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, good luck to you. And it's a great mission, uh, increasing financial inclusion for the underserved, uh, building up credit. Uh, we wish you all the luck. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you guys today. Yeah, good to meet you. That's uh, Patrick D'Souza, the co-founder and CTO at Grain. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening. <laughs>